Midtown Detroit studios of WDET. This is Detroit Today. For the first time in Detroit's history, there are more African Americans living in the suburbs than in the city itself. And that growing diversity is not just unfolding in neighborhoods, but also in workplaces where tensions over culture and environment can be really high. Today, we're going to talk with a couple who've started a nonprofit to help black entrepreneurs and workers find suburban environments that are welcoming and even enthusiastic. That's all next on Detroit Today, but first the news from NPR. your host. As always, thanks for tuning in. When you think of flourishing African-American business corridors here in Southeast Michigan, where do they sit in your mind? You might think of the Livernois Corridor, the Avenue of Fashion, or other spaces where there has been a concerted effort to not only create an environment specifically for black businesses to thrive, but also to be sure that African-American employees and customers feel welcome. This is critical work in the city of Detroit, and even here, there's still lots of work to do. But for the first time in the city's history, most African-Americans in the region are actually not living in the city of Detroit. The 2020 census tells the story of black migration away from Detroit and into the suburbs, which means black people are also working and starting businesses in communities that haven't historically been as focused on the idea of fostering diversity and how important that is. So how do you create work environments in Detroit suburbs that will be welcoming and even enthusiastic for the growing diversity in the region. The truth is, as African-Americans, we often feel pressure to conform to predominantly white working environments. From our wardrobe to our rhetoric and even our choice in hairstyles, we've often got to conceal who we truly are, or at least feel like we have to conceal who we truly are, just to fit in. It's one of those things that if you are black, you think and hear and talk about all the time, mostly with other African-Americans. How do I make myself conform to a workplace whose cultural norms may be different from mine? And is there some place I might find, is there some place we might find where black culture is the dominant culture? Gerard and Rachel Allen are two black business owners in Farmington Hills who are trying to help answer those kinds of questions. They recently started a new nonprofit and business to facilitate entrepreneurship in the suburbs and to create a diverse range of spaces for many different kinds of businesses to thrive. 
it's a really interesting idea that I think points directly at the demographic changes that we're experiencing in the city of Detroit and in the suburbs. We want to talk with Gerard and Rachel about what it's like to start a business in the suburbs, why they felt the need to create more open and diverse working spaces, and what the everyday challenges are for African-American suburban businesses, their workers, and their owners. Gerard and Rachel Allen, welcome to Detroit Today. Thank, Thank you, you for having us. Thank you for having us. Yes. So, uh, Rachel, I'm going to start with you. Uh, tell me what inspired you and your husband to create a business and nonprofit that is aimed at this idea of more diverse workspaces in the suburbs. Uh, how did how did you come to the idea that this was something that absolutely needed to be addressed? Well, thank you again for having us, Stephen. This really started um, when. I started the work with Operation School, which was an attempt to support small businesses and helping them learn how to operate their businesses. So I'd been doing that as a coach and a consultant, mostly around Detroit, sharing spaces at places like Tech Town and, and other spots in Detroit. And then I've been really fortunate for the last three years to be at Mary Grove Conservancy, where I got to bring this concept there. And I have to tell you, being in a predominantly black neighborhood, it was always my intention to help make Mary Grove be one of the blackest places in the city. Mm. And I have to tell you that that wasn't always met with the most amount of enthusiasm. And so because we wanted to make sure that we were creating spaces there that were reflective of the community, what I found was that when you're doing that in, in places that had been you know, largely or previously predominantly white, there felt like there were always going to be restrictions on that. And so as part of my transition and in, in moving into entrepreneurship full time, Gerard and I really wanted to explore what that could look like if we did it for ourselves. And one of the conditions for doing that work is that we'd have to do it unapologetically as ourselves. And I just have to say, after having come coming from corporate careers, we struggled with those very same things that you mentioned in your intro. And we really wanted to create a, a space like Centric Place where black people who are from the suburbs and from the city alike really could see themselves, see a space that was intentionally curated and created for them, and also be a place that we could safely come together and do that in a way where we didn't have to, um, to shrink or contort or to do anything else but be ourselves. Yeah, yeah. So, so Rachel, you and I have had this conversation before about uh, being black and living in the suburbs here uh, in, mm -hmm. in Metro Detroit. Uh, and, and I want you to talk to the listeners just a little about the choices that you've made to, to move out of uh, the city of Detroit and what that experience looks and feels like as the suburbs become more diverse. As I mentioned in the open, uh, there are now more African-Americans living in the suburbs than living in the city of Detroit for the first time in the city's history. That change has inspired all kinds of uh, dynamics, I think, uh, in the suburbs. And, and you've had kind of a front row seat uh, for some of it. So, so explain to our listeners what that's like, both the upside of it, uh, but also the challenges that become clear when 
you've got a critical mass of African Americans in a place instead of uh, one or two or just a few. Yeah. Well, thank you for that. I will tell you that when we spoke a few years ago about this, uh, Gerard and I were in the process of purchasing our home in Farmington Hills, yep. and it wasn't the easiest process. And I will tell you everything from at that time being probably the first black person or black family moving in our subdivision. We now have black neighbors four years later, and there is a, a, a large presence of black students in our school district. And it definitely has increased. So we've actually seen that. We've also personally witnessed our friends and family members moving to the same communities, moving to Oakland County. And so I think that that um, anecdotally is represented with, we know so many more people who have chosen the suburbs over the city. And so it sometimes is controversial as a person who grew up in Detroit and, and was educated in Detroit public schools, making the decision to move to Oakland County to me just felt like a, a choice that was made for a lot of reasons. It might have been the size of home or quality of home or uh, even the cost of the home and, and at that time. And, and real estate has changed obviously quite a bit since then. But one of the big driving factors is we wanted our children to grow up in uh, a different school environment. We wanted them to be able to be you know, at a school of uh, or neighborhood school and have neighborhood friends. And so sometimes that's just not the same in the city. And so I have to say that as we've seen those numbers grow, we have seen people still having to make the choice of going back to the city to enjoy things like restaurants or entertainment, excuse me, even cultural destinations. They simply don't haven't existed in the suburbs. And I have to give credit to Gerard here because it was really him that inspired us to, to make the business pivot into Oakland County from Detroit. We had been looking there for almost a year and really could not find an adequate space to place our business. And so the last thing I'll say about that is anything that we were looking at that would have been comparable in the city would have taken anywhere from a year or two to build out. It would have added a couple hundred thousand dollars in construction costs. And so even just the availability of commercial space that we were able to find in Oakland County, it just simply didn't exist in Detroit. Yeah. And before I get to Gerard, uh, talk about the challenges that you see still living in the suburbs, the things that uh, as an African-American uh, give you pause about where you live and who you're living with and where you work and who you're working with. Yeah, I'd still say that even though the numbers are growing, we still find ourselves being in spaces and places that feel like they've been created for other people, people other than ourselves. You really don't see too many black owned restaurants or, you know, you might have one or two soul food restaurants that might cater towards a black audience. But for the most part, that still feels far and in between. Gerard and I like to frequent places that are close to our home. And we typically may be the only black couple still in there. So that that still happens. I'd also say that um, we haven't found a ton of spaces in the suburbs that that we know we can go and we are going to see other black people feeling safe and comfortable. So that still often feels like a challenge, which is going into spaces and feeling like we're not welcome. And that could be everything from the music that they play or what they're playing on TV. And so it's it's always important to try to find those spaces and be with other black people. Um, but then that's, I think, again, been another inspiration for us is, is 
what would a space like that look like? Because to be honest, we didn't realize that we were going to be one of the first to do it. We just thought it was something that was necessary to do. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Gerard, I, I want to bring you into the conversation here and have you uh, talk to us specifically about Centric Place, uh, what it is, uh, how it operates, and uh, what you're trying to, to bring about uh, with, with this, this new place, this new idea. Yeah, um, so in, in clear understanding of what it is that we do, we are focused in foundationally on arts, culture, and entrepreneurship. So being able to tie all three of those things in allows us to uh, represent ourselves in our workplace, um, in our creative spaces, uh, but also in the freedom to actually have entrepreneurship and understand uh, what that means and why it's necessary for so many um, black residents, especially in Oakland County. Uh, the opportunities are there. Um, obviously, there's there's housing there, but we tend to always turn back to the city to believe that's the only place for opportunity. Um, so what we're doing in uh, Centric Place is providing that opportunity. Number one, like for artists, for those who have very rarely had an opportunity to put their artwork up on the wall or be in a place that's cultivated for black art, we're providing that. Um, cultural spaces or, or event spaces, retreat spaces for um, businesses who are running um, in the Oakland County now have a place to retreat, to meet with other organizations that are similar to theirs, um, but also to properly network in the right spaces. So what we do provide is a uh, co-working space. We also provide private offices uh, where Rachel's uh, organization runs as operation school, we have a classroom to facilitate, and then we also have a large event space in the bottom. So what this now does is on multiple levels allows people to to come in to work on the level that they're in and not feel like they have to fully take on the responsibility of signing up into a long-term lease or trying to build out, um, you know, a brick and mortar just to start their business. But now we've cultivated a space that allows businesses to come in to get started to learn the foundational parts of running their business, but also have a cultural space that looks exactly like them. Um, so as soon as you walk into our building, you see a collection of Ebony original magazines on the wall <laughs> that lets you know from the beginning that you are in a black space. Um, I always think very clearly about uh, Do the Right Thing with Spike Lee's scene where he's, the guys are so upset that they don't see black faces. How come there's no brothers on the, on the wall? wall right? Yeah, how come there's no brothers on the wall? Well, now there's brothers on the wall and there's sisters on the wall and there's no reason to feel like the place that you're frequenting and the place that you're spending your dollars to grow your business is not reflective of you as soon as you walk in the door. Yeah. So so uh, tell me about the reaction that you're getting from African-Americans in the suburbs yeah. who might be eager for this, but also tell me mm -hmm. about the reaction of, of other folks. I mean, obviously, this is not an exclusive place. Uh, are there other people who also are interested in, in this kind of place? Uh, absolutely. So generationally is actually one of the first connections we've been able to make. Uh, some of our elders or folks who are just a few years older than us, a few decades, are in love with what it feels like to come into this space. Uh, but also for those who are of other races, understand what it is that we're doing. And because Rachel and I come from a background of uh, of education, we come from the nonprofit sector, um, and we also come from the entrepreneurship sector, we understand what things are necessary to run a business and to operate. Um, so you're right, it's not exclusive to say, no, you can't come in here and, and uh, have an event. 
but it does say that this is run just as professionally um, as any other place that exists in the entire state. And I'm going to say as far as the nation, Rachel has won awards on so many different levels. Um, I've won awards on levels as far as uh, nonprofit work and, and cultural work. So what you're getting is a full world-class experience no matter what. Um, I think race is, is allowing us to do it, and that's what's pushing us. But we are giving you a world-class experience on every single level. Hmm. I'm talking with Gerard Allen, who's a co-founder at Centric Place, uh, as well as Rachel Allen, another co-founder at Centric Place, which is an office and event space uh, that is aimed at being more welcoming to African-Americans uh, living in the Detroit suburbs. Uh, Rachel is also the CEO and principal strategist for Operation School, uh, which is a nonprofit incubator for a diverse range of businesses. We're talking about the idea of welcoming spaces for African-Americans and African-American businesses in the suburbs where, for the first time in history, the majority of African-Americans in this region are living. No longer are we living in the city of Detroit, uh, in a majority, uh, we are mostly uh, now living in the suburbs. That brings about an enormous number of changed dynamics, uh, not just in neighborhoods and schools, but also in workplaces. What the Allens are doing is aimed at creating workspaces uh, where African Americans don't have to feel the pressure to conform uh, to cultures that aren't uh, ours, to, to have a place where uh, black culture is the dominant culture. We'd love to hear from you during the conversation as well. Are you somebody who uh, lives in the suburbs and owns a business in the suburbs or works in the suburbs? Uh, if you're African-American, uh, have you ever had to hide aspects of who you are uh, in the workplace? Uh, have you ever felt the pressure to kind of pretend not to be uh, so black uh, in, in a workspace because you felt like uh, it, would, uh, it would elicit a negative response from, from coworkers? Uh, how excited would you be about a place uh, where uh, the dominant culture was uh, African-American culture? If you could go and work there Instead, uh, also give us a sense of the things that make you feel comfortable at work. Uh, what kind of things do you feel the workplace needs to offer uh, for you to feel comfortable? Uh, also, if you're not African-American, give us a call. And let us know what you think about this idea. Uh, this idea would you go work in a place uh, that was intentionally uh, tilted toward African-American culture, uh, in intentionally aimed at making uh, African-Americans feel more comfortable uh, at work. Would you feel comfortable in that kind of space? Uh, are you somebody who already works, uh, if you're not African-American, maybe in an environment where most of the other people uh, are African-American? Give us a sense of uh, how that feels and how you manage it. As always, the number here on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today, and we can, uh, work, we can work you into the conversation uh, that way. Um, so uh, both of you, uh, Rachel and Gerard, are second-generation entrepreneurs, um, I, I, I think one of the things that, of course, we have real challenge with in the African-American community is 
uh, starting that business, that first start of the business. You guys learned that uh, uh, from your parents, which I think is uh, a really important dimension of this of this story. I, I, I wonder if you can talk about the things you learned from your parents that uh, you do in your business today. Rachel, I'll start with you. Well, I'll start with, I, I learned from my mother just how infectious the entrepreneurial spirit is. And as a kid, it was really hard for me to understand why after quitting a corporate job, cashing out her 401k, and then forging out on her own in a business, why it was so difficult to go back to, to a corporate job, particularly when money was tight, we became housing insecure. Um, my vantage point only saw why can't she just go and get a job? And what I understand now is that once you have that entrepreneurial spirit, it's really difficult to fit into spaces after you've been able to create that for yourself. I also learned that the important thing about entrepreneurship is staying with it. We've run multiple businesses, Gerard and I, and myself in particular, and it's never about just doing that one thing that you think that you're supposed to do. It's about building the kind of muscle and resiliency that says, even if I have to pivot, I will stick with it. And so what I appreciate most all these years later is just what what my seeing my mom do that, how that really did lay a foundation for me that mm-hmm. wouldn't reap dividends until so many, many, so many years later. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Gerard, uh, we're going to have to take a break in a couple of minutes, but I want to get your, your answer to that too. Yeah, actually a very similar um, beginning uh, with Rachel's mother uh, that I saw in my father. Uh, my father was 20 years at, uh, at the time, Michigan Bell, and he took the buyout to start his own business. And so um, what I learned from that is to obviously take a chance on yourself. Um, he could have spent, you know, years more or attempted to go back into the corporate world um, but he saw a place where he could, uh, you know, take those earnings, uh, start a business. He was able to hire family. And from that, I learned that, um, you know, you got to seize the opportunity when it comes and honestly just bet on yourself and uh, believe in yourself. I mean, he worked the corporate world, so he understood what things needed to happen. And I think Rachel and I are also picking up on that same uh, type of uh, theory that, you know, what needs to happen in a workplace, you know, what things didn't fit for you. Um, you know what kind of things you need to hear in, in a meeting and how you need to be motivated as a worker. You understand that. And it doesn't take someone to lead you to do that, but you definitely have the opportunity uh, to propel yourself into those places. And that's what that's what I learned from my father. I saw him do it. I saw the sacrifices. Um, I saw him sweep the floors. I saw him mop the floors and clean the windows. And so when you're at Centric Place, you'll see me doing the same uh, because I, I take that same form of humility that I'll do all the hard work. Uh, Rachel will do the hard work. You'll see us both there doing the hard work because we take a certain amount of pride into making sure um, that when we're creating a space, we're not just saying it, but we're definitely living it um, through experiences that we we saw both of our parents go through. Yeah. Okay, we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to continue this conversation about black spaces in the Detroit suburbs, uh, where they might exist, where they should exist. We're talking to two people who are trying to create more black spaces for entrepreneurs and other businesses uh, in, uh, in the Detroit suburbs. Also want to continue to hear from you on the phones and on social. 313-577-1019 is the number. Jenny and Gross Point 
Point, Dan and Southfield, you'll be up first. Again, if you want to join them, 313-577-1019. You can also go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today, and we'll work you into the conversation. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today. WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson. And as always, thanks for tuning in. Right now, we're talking with Gerard and Rachel Allen. They are co-founders at Centric Place, an office and event space in uh, the Detroit suburbs that is focused on creating uh, places where African Americans, who are in growing numbers living and working in the suburbs, where we can feel more comfortable at work, where we can feel more like the dominant culture in a workplace is ours instead of white culture. Uh, This is an issue that uh, if you are black, uh, you've probably had lots of conversations, mostly with other black folks, about uh, how we deal with the workplace, how we deal with the workplace environment, the pressure sometimes that we feel uh, to kind of conceal parts of ourselves in the workplace. Uh, What Rachel and Gerard are doing is aimed at making us feel less of that pressure, feel more comfortable uh, in our own workspaces. Uh, we want to hear from you during this conversation as well. What do you think of the idea of creating uh, black, uh, black-focused black workspaces? What do you think of the idea of uh, the discomfort that uh, African Americans feel uh, many times in the workplace? Is this something you've experienced in the past? Uh, is this something that you've witnessed uh, in your own workplace? Uh, also, give us a sense of what makes you feel comfortable at work? Uh, as always, the number here on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today, and we'll work into the conversation. We're going to start today with uh, Jenny in Gross Point. Jenny, welcome to the show. Good morning. Hey. So I live in one of the whitest communities in the area, Gross Point, um, and, uh, but I've worked with the people I've worked with by majority for my career have been um, black people. So um, there is so much to be gained um, for, you know, speaking to other white people. There's so much to be gained by, um, you know, learning about anyone, but especially just being in a, a space that's, you know, black centric. It's, it's in terms of self-esteem, etiquette. There's so much you can get from it. Um, and, you know, just it, it's it's an amazing thing. I would absolutely use the service um, that you guys are providing. And I thank you so much for coming on here and talking about it. We've had our issues with racism here in Gross Point, infamously. And um, the Gross Point community could hugely benefit from um something like what you guys are doing over in Farmington Hill so, or Farmington. So, so I appreciate you very much. So Jenny, I've got a question for you. You you, you started off talking about your own uh, experience. I want to know a little more about that. You said you've okay. mostly worked in in uh, predominantly African-American environments. Talk about how how that feels for you and, and whether those were, um, you know, maybe the first time uh, that you experienced that. I mean, for African-Americans, uh, it's something we experience much more frequently, I think, as being in the minority, right? Yeah. Uh, uh, but but uh, I'm always curious 
uh, when when white people have the same kind of experience. Can you talk more about yours? Absolutely. Well, I was, you know, raised by my white parents to be conscious of race, but I always tell everyone um, you don't really understand. I mean, you, you never can fully understand, but you don't really understand what it's like to be black and, you know, just walking around in most places that are white until you've been, you know, somebody who's uh, a member of a minority group relative to where you are. So being the only white person somewhere mm-hmm. is a hugely um, informative experience and it's just it's really good for character development and just in general about blacks or well, I guess about black people specifically um it's there's just so much I've learned you know without getting into nitty-gritty of cultural differences but um as a person I I just find myself to be much um have much better etiquette um more aware of how I'm affecting other people around me and also just feeling better about myself and like being okay with feeling better about myself. That's another real benefit that I saw just being lucky enough to be able to work around mostly black people, especially Mm. black women. Mm. Uh, Jenny, I really appreciate the call and, and your candor about, uh, about your personal experience here. Uh, Gerard and Rachel, I want to give you a chance to, to react to what uh, Jenny's saying. We talked a little bit earlier about the fact that, you know, centric place is not an exclusive, uh, in, in environment and, and perhaps there might be, uh, white folks here in Southeast Michigan who might want to, want to participate as well. Jenny sounds like, uh, that kind of person. Gerard, I'll start with you. Yeah, well, thank you, Jenny, for calling in, um, number one, and for sharing that uh, that light of positivity. Um, you're you're right. Um, she, she can definitely come and work. Um, we would love to have you as a uh, as a resident member um, to join into what it is that we are focusing on. Um, again, the thought is that we are providing a space, right? But we do want to make sure that people know that it you know it is a black centered space. But yeah, everyone's welcome um, to be a part of that centric place. Um, we again are we frequent very often other event spaces or other office spaces, and so we are also welcome in those places, but not necessarily um, in every facet of it. So again, we want to make sure that we're cognizant of not repeating the same behavior, yeah. if, that, if that makes sense. Yeah. Um, so so thank you, Jenny. We're we're not trying to repeat it. Um, but we're definitely trying to shift what that looks like. Well, well, thank you. And and Rachel, there is this idea, I think, of a, uh, I think, for lack of a better phrase, a, a cultural humbling that I think um, is necessary sometimes uh, for white people to be able to be in a space that is. Uh, mm-hmm. predominantly African-American because, uh, you know, I mean, this is a culture that uh, at least nationally uh, is, is, is dominantly white. And, and there is this idea of, I guess, kind of just humbling yourself just a little bit uh, to be able to go into a space that isn't like your, your own. And, and uh, Rachel, I think what Jenny's talking about here is, uh, her experience doing that, it, it's kind of what you guys are asking in a broader sense uh, with, with Centric Place. Absolutely. And I, I appreciate folks like Jenny who understand that there is a slight bit of humility that's required to go into a space that mm-hmm. is intentionally created for a different culture and to be open-minded and accepting of that. Black people have to do that all the time. 
we go into communities where there might be Indian or Chaldean or Asian American or white, and we are asked to do that every place that we go so often that we are we very rarely see spaces that have been intentionally created for us. So we do that all of the time. And so I, I think to Gerard's earlier point, we also understand that to make this a successful business, we have to also humbly ask and exchange that other cultures are just as willing to do the same thing for us. So by in, by design, we are not saying that this is exclusively only a place where black folks can come. In fact, the reception that we have received have been so overwhelmingly positive from both black and non-black folks alike. So we know that we've definitely hit a nerve here, but we definitely wanna be clear that it, it's a bit of that humbling experience on both sides that we ask that you come in and just expect professionalism and be able to learn more about the, you know, again, our history and culture. For us, it starts by even saying we've met people, Stephen, who have never heard of Ebony Magazine mm -hmm. and wow. they don't know the faces on the wall. So when they see Muhammad Ali or mm -hmm. even Rosa Parks and Malcolm X, I've, we've literally heard people say, who are those people? And it's an opportunity for us to teach them and educate them. And so while there are other folks who see those magazine covers and see their grandma's house from when they were growing up, we recognize that there's a whole other subset of folks who haven't been exposed to those same things. Yeah, yeah. Uh, again, Jenny, really appreciate the call and uh, the the really candid uh, experience that you've had. Uh, let's go to Katie in Royal Oak next. Katie, welcome to the show. Hi, Stephen. Hey. Thanks for answering. Um, I am a, a white business owner with a bakery in Rochester, Royal Oak, and Detroit. So in Royal Oak, we're really at a nexus of the three counties, and we enjoy a great deal of diversity on the streetscape in Royal Oak. And what, what my husband and I have learned is um, what Rachel was saying. There is a requirement for intentionality in creating a space where everyone feels welcome. And we have chosen, for example, to hang Chaz Miller in our bakery in, in Detroit and Lisa Spindler's photographs in our bakery in Royal Oak. And we think very hard about the kind of music that we play. And I'm wondering if the guests might be able to say something and make suggestions to people like me who want to create inclusive spaces that appeal to a wide demographic that inhabits the tri-county area yeah uh, katie uh, first of all i'm really glad that you are intentionally trying to do that and and focusing on that intention i think that is uh, a, a super important word when you're talking about this there's this assumption sometimes that uh, if you just aren't acting in a discriminatory manner that uh, that you're being welcoming or creating spaces that are welcoming to, to all people but that's uh, not always the case uh, in in many cases, and I would say maybe in most, you do have to take uh, affirmative action uh, to to make sure uh, that you are creating uh, a, a a welcoming space. But uh, but I want to have our guests answer answer your question about what what more uh, people can be doing. Rachel, this time I'll start with you. Mm -hmm. So I think that it is important to trust people who are of that community to help educate you there. So I've been in spaces 
as a consultant, I work with a number of organizations across Metro Detroit, and they trust me to be honest about how they can do similar things in their organizations. And so it might be something like, hey, if you don't know what those are, asking those people and saying, hey, what's something that could be you know, appealing, but also would feel special if you saw or heard that in our space. And so we, we could use music as an example of that, that that's just one of those types of connotations where a person can feel that. And so I'll tie this back to Centric Place. We were more focused on how we wanted to make people feel, not necessarily just what they would see or smell, but how do we want people to feel? And the word that keeps coming back for us is people feel it's peaceful, it feels like home. And so we do that through a number of, of, of mediums. But Lisa, I would encourage you to talk to people who have that lived experience and starting from there. Sometimes if we just do that from a perspective that's our own, we might his, hit uh, miss the mark. But I do think that if you have people on your staff or customers or people that you've trusted or have trusted your place of business repeatedly, you know, ask them what are some of the things that they appreciate. But I would say I, I find it a privilege when my clients trust me enough to give them some of that same guidance from my lived experience. And so I'd say starting from a place uh, there, I, I think would be a really good place to start. Yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, Gerard, mm -hmm. do you have anything to add to that? <clears throat> yeah, I think what Rachel's saying is is dead on. Uh, but I do want to add in the uh, the level I think she is saying, but a word I just want to make sure that that it's clear is that the changes are organic. Um, and speaking to being in corporate spaces, um, to me it's off putting when I do hear immediately like I want to change the music. So it's good to hear that you are thinking about music. You are thinking about the art that you're putting on the wall. Mm -hmm. um, but to me, what matters more are the organic changes. Um, so giving people an opportunity who may or may not speak very often to have input into your place. Now, I, I wouldn't suggest completely changing the vibe because it may be a certain vibe already that is appealing to your crowd. But I would suggest that um, you leave an open forum for suggestions or uh, for people to add to the playlist or even maybe uh, take over the aux, you know, having those kind of fun interactions <laughs> with your customers. Right. So you do get a feel of, OK, this is what they're listening to. This is what's playing on their headphones. And so now it feels more natural uh, versus it's feeling more like a survey uh, of your employees, but also of the people who are in your workspace. So just that organic change, I think you're in the right mindset of thinking about it. Um, but again, having felt like I'm the black guy in the room. And so people are going to say, OK, how do we put something black in here? And then the attention turns towards me. Yeah. Um, versus it just being natural. Hey, I'm going to actually raise my hand about this point because now it means something and feel like I'm actually heard in the process is I think how you make those changes. Yeah, yeah. Uh, again, yeah. Uh, Katie, really appreciate the call. Uh, let's go to Rosie in Livonia. Rosie, what's on your mind? Good day, all of you. Thank you for all your efforts and staying strong through it all. I want to say that first to all and everybody. Um, also, I recently had to quit my job, which I really, really liked. I started back in June and I had to quit just a week and a half ago. I just couldn't take any anymore. I'm mentioning this because I am mixture. I am Puerto Rican, Cuban, Lebanese, and black. So that's mm. an array of, of <laughs> an influx there. Mm -hmm. So wherever I, I go, it's always like a question. Where's your accent from? Where do you come from? What are, where are you? What are you? What do you like? And all of these things. So mind you, I have so many cultures to tap into. Where I recently worked, it was Arabic, 
um, I worked at a collision shop, and I was getting racial slurs left and right. Mm. Uh, yeah, sexism was a thing. Like, the racism and the sexism, everything was just, like, too much. It was creating so many problems for me because I'm a kind-hearted person. I stay quiet. I rather stay quiet. I was taught, if you have nothing nice to say, don't say nothing at all. Mm. So I chose to keep it you know, under under the wraps and, like, keep it thing, things calm. Um, but, yeah, as of a week and a half ago, I had to leave. He asked enough. me to cover up. Yeah. Uh, Rosie, I, I, I'm, I'm sorry, first, uh, that you had that experience and that uh, you felt like you had to leave your job uh, because of it. Um, we're, we're running out of time in the segment, but but uh, Rachel, I want to give you a chance to, to respond and, and talk about, again, how far we still kind of have to go in uh, in Metro Detroit uh, to 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 make uh, more more places where you know people can feel like uh, they, they belong and are not uh, not unwelcome. Uh, Rosie's story is is a reminder of that. Absolutely, and Rosie, I'm so sorry to hear that you had that experience. I have to tell you. I myself have had similar experiences. Other women of color that I know have had those experiences. And to Stephen's earlier point, it's typically something that we only talk about amongst other people of color. We don't really get a chance to tell outsiders what that experience has been like. I've been in spaces that were meant to be places where I, I should have been able to be myself. And I've been asked to tone it down, or to essentially, you know, shine less bright or, you know, not try to stand out. I've even found myself having to change the way that I've talked. Uh, I, you know, we call this code switching where I found myself having like a higher pitch to my voice or either um, being more sensitive about the way that I wear my hair, particularly when I started with locks and then transitioned into my natural curl pattern. White people especially were constantly commenting about my hair. I mean, so I say that to say that it's something that we have taken in stride because we tend to think that it's just the way that it is. And one of the things that Gerard and I have, have really hoped to create at Centric Place is a place where you can be absolutely whoever you are. And so that might mean if you come to work and you want to wear, wear a graphic tee and Jordans and, and jeans, that's professional. This isn't the place where somebody can tell you what professional looks like because that's who, you know, an expression of who you are. And so, you know, I think part of this phase of both of our both personal and professional lives is really about being 100% who we are and in most expressions, it's being 100% our blackest selves. And so I, we do that because we hope that that gives other folks permission to be 100% their whole black selves or, or whatever their ethnicity is. Um, because what we found is there is a freedom to that. And Stephen, we got to tell you, our, our space is on Freedom Road. And so for <laughs> us, that is not uh, a coincidence, but we really hope that that level of freedom that we are finding in this venture is something that inspires other people to find the same. Yeah, yeah. Okay, uh, Rachel and Gerard Allen, it was really, really great to have both of you here to talk about Centric Place and uh, the work you're doing to create welcoming spaces, especially for African-Americans. Thanks so much for being here on Detroit Today. Right. Thank you Thank for the you opportunity. For Thank you very much. And you can check out Centric Place at centricplace.com.
All right, we're going to take another break, and when we come back, uh, we are going to stay in the state of Michigan but move to Detroit where we're going to talk with someone who has been advocating for the improvement of Detroit's public schools for a really long time. Stay with us for more Detroit Today. WDET is your place for open dialogue. The music you love. Real news and in-depth analysis. And cultural experiences. The sound of Detroit. 1019 WDET is your public radio station. This is Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. There are two things that have been true about Detroit schools for as long as I can remember. One is that we have a great many challenges making sure that our schools offer the right opportunities to all the kids in our city. But the other thing that's true is that there are lots and lots of people who work really hard to improve Detroit schools all the time. One of those people is Charlonda Buckman Davis. She is Assistant Superintendent of Family and Community Engagement at the Detroit Public Schools Community District, and she's also the author of a book called The Ardent Advocate, which is about her quest to improve Detroit schools. I'm really pleased to welcome Charlonda Buckman Davis to Detroit Today. Charlonda, great to have you here. It's great to be here, uh, Henderson. I, I love your work and I love the show and, and what it does to kind of bring light to some of the issues that we care about and especially um, around education. So thank you so much for having me today. Yeah, it's great to have you here. You and I have known each other a long time and talked many times about the challenges uh, we face in our schools. So uh, let's talk first about your book, uh, The Ardent Advocate. It it uh, chronicles your your journey uh, in improving Detroit schools. You started as an advocate on the outside. Now you're on the inside. Tell me about that. Yeah, it actually started way before then, um, quite honestly, Henderson, um, just as a young person who was a uh, student within uh, Detroit public schools uh, back in uh, the late 70s, early 80s. And um, at 14, found myself um, having been expelled from all Detroit public schools. And uh, one of the things that happened during that time is that, you know, as a young person, I was uh, really uh, afraid of high school. Uh, it's one of the things that we know to be true today. It's, it's, um, it was uncomfortable for me uh, to think about going to school with all those big folks, especially when you come from a K-8 where there's a lot more intimacy, you have a homeroom teacher, et cetera, et cetera. And so, um, so my experience actually started uh, during those early years and really cemented uh, the things that I believe about what needs to happen to ignite change and create equity and opportunity for all young people. Um, so if I could spend a few minutes there, I'd like to, because I do think um, we are a collection of our experiences and that really was the impetus of, of writing The Ardent Advocate um, uh, for folks to uh, really take note of some of the things that it takes to be uh, active in this space and to and to stay the the course in terms of what we need to happen. So 
Um, Henderson, so at 14, I found myself in high school, right? <laughs> I um, remember specifically walking to my world history class and we were studying Buddhism. And I thought that was hilarious because um, the teacher quite honestly looked like the Buddha to me, except for he had hair at the time. <laughs> and um, it was it was an interest uh, to me because, um, you know, I just, it, it took me away from, in my head, from uh, my community. Uh, but as I entered my class one day, I found myself in this mixed class. It was an elective class. So there were ninth, 10th, 11th, 12th graders there. And what happened next is there, there was a, a, a senior who emerged uh, from the top of the class. It was a tiered class. Uh, I was a ninth grader, but she emerged uh, from the top of the class and she commenced to attack me and beat me up in front of the class. Now at that time, the teacher jumped up, he came over, he lifted me, uh, another student held the senior, he took me into the hallway. A few minutes later, Henderson, um, the senior busts through the door. She beats me up again in the hallway um, saying at different points, I heard you've been effing with my cousin, mm -hmm. right? Didn't know who she was, um, was completely uh, humiliated and upset and began to walk away as the tears just kind of streamed down my face. And I walked away saying, uh, well, let me go before I hurt this girl, you know, and call my mom to come get me. Now, as I walked up the stairs of my high school, um, it was very clear to me that nobody was coming to get me. It was a time where, um, although my dad had worked for Ford Chrysler and GM, um, the, the grip and gravity of drugs that had entered his life and in essence um, strangled our household. Um, really um, was devastating for us yeah. as a family. Yeah. My mother did yeah. not drive, and so nobody was coming uh, to pick me up. But I know that I needed to hear her voice to find some comfort and um, some balance so that I could get home. So at the time, if you remember payphones, remember when people so, used to have. So to I don't want to. I don't want to cut you short, but we are going to run out of time. I I, I want to. Oh, this is such oh, a great oh, story, oh, but I want you to get to. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, sure, sure. So uh, fast forwarding um, uh, to that phone call and then we'll transition. Um, I remember trying to call home. I was so nervous and upset. I heard this voice again saying, hey, I have something for you. The same teen um, ran towards me. And instead of running in the office at that particular time, we both ran towards each other. I said, I have something for you too. I swung and in that moment, we both fell back. Um, and uh, both of our lives changed and we both left that moment fighting for our lives. And yeah. so what I heard the security uh, person say is this bitch just stabbed a girl. And I realized he was talking about me. Yeah. Yeah. And so I mean, I, I, you go from that low point, though, to, to being yeah. inside the system advocating for our kids and, and for parents. I, again, we've only got about a minute left, but I want to give you a chance to talk about that transition, that incredible yeah. journey. Yeah. Absolutely. And so, you know, so when you think about our young people, everything boils down to access and opportunity. It was fortunate for me that the community came together and made sure um, that I got my education. And so that is what matriculated me into the advocate that I am today. My parents love me. Um, they stood by me. We were able to um, have a retired teacher and all these deposits matter, right? Who came in and tutored me uh, for years. And so um, for me and the work that I led at Detroit Parent Network, it was always about recognizing that if my mom, um, if our family had had the support of a parent organization at that time, um, it could have been a very different story. So for 14 years, I led that work knowing and believing that parents needed support to support their children to be 
effective in school and also working to create opportunities for young people all across the city in every role that I've played. Because I know that the difference of young people being successful in that boils down to access and opportunity. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Charlanda Buckman Davis, I would love to continue this conversation with you. We probably will have to have you back to talk more. Uh, not just about your background, but of course about your work. But I really appreciate you joining us today. Thanks so much for coming by. Thank you so much, um, Henderson. And support <laughs> our website on Amazon.com. Yes. Okay, that's going to do it for us today. Come back tomorrow when we are going to have a special holiday episode of Detroit Today. I'm going to play some of my favorite holiday tunes. This is 1019 WDET-FM, Detroit's NPR station.